0: You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio online.
1: Yeah. This side. Sound-
0: I'm Jeremy Ferris, Digital Content Manager at Providence Public Library and design and layout lead for the Rhode Island COVID-19 Archive. You just heard a song written and performed by Anthony Savino and submitted to the COVID Archive on April 1, 2020, almost a full year ago. Within weeks of the Rhode Island shutdown for COVID-19, the Archive was established and began collecting submissions from Rhode Islanders to document their experiences during the pandemic. Developed as a partnership between the Rhode Island Historical Society and Providence Public Library, the project is a public rapid response digital collecting initiative that seeks to gather and preserve stories of pandemic life from westerly to Woonsocket, from second graders to the elderly. In this episode of Rhodey Radio, you'll learn about the development of the Rhode Island COVID-19 archive, and we hope be inspired to contribute your own thoughts, essays, poems, photographs, movies, music, and art. The archive is open to anyone to document their experience of the pandemic in Rhode Island. To submit, just log on to ricovidarchive.org and click on contribute an item. The website will ask you to create an account and then walk you through uploading your submission. You're welcome to identify yourself or submit anonymously if you prefer. You can decide just how creative you like to be and the language to describe your contribution. Your experience matters and shapes how history will understand what it was like to live through COVID-19. In addition to submissions from individual Rhode Islanders, the archive hosts COVID projects created by community partners. Some of our collections are from street photographers, school classrooms, retirement communities, and artists. Our very first hosted community collection was Wright, Rhode Island, a short fiction competition for 7th to 12th graders in the state. They quickly responded to COVID by asking young people to write about their experiences in our new pandemic world. We asked one of the founders of the program, author Taylor Politis, about how they got young people to think about their experience with COVID and why they contributed those essays to the archive.
2: When um, the, the whole coronavirus thing began to blow up in the spring, um, we very quickly, it occurred to us very quickly, um, you know, and my colleagues Hester Kaplan and Diana Champa, uh, who co-manage uh, and produce the the competition, uh, we understood, of course, as we all understood that this was an extraordinary event we were all living through, and it made sense to put out a call to young people. Uh, to just submit a reflection. And so we thought, you know, let's make it short, you know, two pages, 500 words, and a personal reflection on the way their world, uh, the the world that these young people inhabit had changed over, you know, the past month or so. And what was extraordinary to me when we first began getting submissions is um, the maturity and the the sense of community and connection that these kids expressed in such elegant, kind of honest, you know, making themselves vulnerable, um, bringing some such sincerity to the table in ways that so many adults didn't seem to be able to to reach in the sort of chaos of those first uh, couple months. And it was it is important for for us as well to think about um, a. Uh, a benefit, a, a clear sort of a concrete valuing of that effort, and I had heard about the archive that um, you at the Providence Public Library and the Rhode Island Historical Society were building, and it made perfect sense instantly to to sort of ask you if if the um, the submissions from these young people would be uh, something you would you would want to invite into the archive, and I was thrilled. We were all thrilled that um, that these submissions from the young people found a home in the archive, because of the, um, again, the, the way that entering a work into an archive creates a valuing of a voice or of an experience, and that these are young people who I think often feel like they don't have a voice or aren't listened to, that they cover um, young people across the state, Um, We had dozens and dozens of submissions from every corner of the state reflecting this incredible range of experiences that kids were having in this this extraordinary moment. And so I think that in addition to the idea that this sort of creates a value and a special sort of moment for the individual writer to feel that their work is being contributed to an archive, all of these voices create a really valuable document of the experience of young people, which again is not so visible in other places and other collections and in other ways that this experience gets documented. And so um, we were thrilled that, that you all were collecting into this space and preserving the voices and range of experiences young people were having for the future, you know, people in the future to come back and and look at and and see, um, you know, and see the things that people were thinking and talking about, particularly these young people.
0: How did this project get started? And how did it become a collaborative effort between uh, PPL and the Historical Society?
3: I am Kate Wells, the Curator for the Rhode Island Collections at Providence Public Library and the PPL Co-Project Manager for the COVID Archive.
0: I'm Becca Bender.
4: I'm the Curator and Archivist of Moving Image and Recorded Sound at the Rhode Island Historical Society, and I'm the Project Manager for the Historical Society side.
3: Becca and I were each, um, I think each of our institutions were starting to think as soon as the shutdown happened that we were living through a historical moment and we probably needed to... Make sure it was documented for our own collections Um, and there was a fortuitous moment when a colleague of mine Christina Bevilacqua ran into Becca on a walk downtown happened to mention that we were talking about it on our end and put the two of us in touch with one another so that um, we very quickly realized that collaborating together as partners on a project made a lot more sense um, that we'd have much greater reach and that staff capacity would be better utilized if we did it together so It happened pretty quickly. I would say maybe within a week of the shutdown.
0: What felt important to document or record at the beginning of the project? And why did this particular, like what were the specifics that felt important about this moment in time?
3: Well, one of the things I think both of our organizations realized really quickly was um, in looking at. Sort of what materials and documentation we had for the spanish flu in 1918 that there was nothing really on record about the experience of regular people so there was sort of state and city reports and hospital records but there wasn't anything about sort of really what was the lived experience and so that for us was what was really key i think to collect was um what did this moment feel like for us as individuals, but also everyone else in the state. You know, how was the experience of somebody, um, you know, who was on a break from school as it closed really quickly or had to be moving, going into the hospitals um, or working in public health departments? Like, you know, how did those experiences differ from one another? How were they the same? Um, And so I think we really quickly focused in on that kind of cultural or lived experience. Um as what we wanted to make sure the project documented.
4: I think the other you know the other thing that made this a very different collecting initiative for both of our institutions, which is that it follows the model of rapid response collecting, which is you are you are diving in and you're trying to get get those um, those records, that documentation of the experience while it's happening. Um, and so often the materials that come into our institutions are, our sort of reflections back and somebody later on in time interprets those items for us and kind of tries to explain what was going on at the time and what we really wanted to do is let everybody who was living through it explain it for themselves and explain it in in that moment um feeling the way they were at that time so that we would we would have that into the archive, in the archive from the jump and there wouldn't be that need to sort of go back.
3: For both PPL and RIHS, this kind of digital rapid response digital collecting was brand new for both of us. So um, we very quickly called up Jim, who we knew and had worked with in the past um, and has extensive experience doing this kind of project.
5: Uh, Jim McGrath at Northeastern University's history department and I am the public humanities lead the question of rapid response collections they have they've been around for a few decades now, at least in a digital format and I've previously worked on one. That focused on the Boston Marathon bombings in 2013 in their aftermath and getting the temperature and, and perspectives of various people in the city of Boston and outside of Boston. On how they were processing those events. There have been collections about Hurricane Katrina, um, September 11th, uh, various um, events that that have really sort of had a significant impact uh, in many different ways on on the day to day aspects of people's life, and I think we have these events that have happened, and we don't have those d- those day to day experiences. So so rapid response collecting kind of helps to open up the archive and its collections, ideally um, to 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 document a wider range of experiences and to acknowledge that for many people as they're experiencing these events, they are documenting in their own ways on social media, um, maybe in sometimes in more private ways, like they have a journal or they're having conversations with friends. So it's, it's, it's also acknowledging the, the ways that people experience, um, you know, particularly momentous events, um, and how to and how to draw on that wide range of material. So it doesn't just disappear into the, the world wide web or, or get deleted or get lost if it has some particular significance to it.
3: Once we realized we for sure wanted to do a digital collecting initiative, the question was really what the platform was gonna to be to make that happen. Um, so Becca and Jim and I had several conversations about what the, pro- what the platform needed to be able to do. So how would people access it? Um, what kinds of formats did it need to be able to accept? Um, and from a design perspective and also thinking through technical infrastructure, we knew we needed several other people at the table. So um, we brought in Dana from RHS and Jeremy from PPL, who really were able to guide us through that process. So bringing those folks in, we were able to really evaluate what we thought we could maintain over um, over the duration of the project.
0: What were some early contributions to the archive, like highlights of that or or the kind of materials that were first coming in?
3: I remember taking uh, a photograph of a sign of a um, neighborhood um, playground being closed, um, where the sign basically says closed, for, closed because of COVID, um, with sort of ta- caution tape right across the gate, thinking that that was so strange when I went past it. Um, and you would have heard earlier in the podcast, one a very early submission, which was a song um, written by Anthony Savino called Golden Thread, where he sort of remakes a um, sort of traditional song um, into COVID specific language and storytelling. Um, and he submitted that on April 1st. So that was within, I think, I don't remember actually the date we had the site Psych- go live, but it was literally within days that we started getting contributions and, and we just started sending out publicity through our normal library channel. I
4: mean, I think one thing that's been really interesting to, to watch over the past year as the submissions have changed is what types of submissions were people putting in in that early period versus what was coming later. Um, and certainly in the early period, I think a lot of it was photograph based. It was this sort of observational people walking down their street and suddenly the marquee of a theater sign said, you know, stay safe, go here for more information. Um, and things like playgrounds being closed. And, um, and then as time went on, I think, you know, oftentimes things got more reflective. Um, and I think what may have actually been the first contribution that wasn't from one of us um, was a screenshot from somebody's phone. This is um, a contribution from someone named Kate Burlington. That's a screenshot of a text conversation she's having with her brother, and then a, a bubble of, comes up on her phone that says, Extreme Alert, State of Rhode Island, due to COVID-19, do not gather in groups of 25 plus health.ri.gov. And that's from March 17th at 2.35. And of course, we've all now in the state gotten several of those alerts on our phones, right? You know, the hospitals are at near capacity or this has become a, this has become part of the pandemic. Um, And I hadn't remembered that we had actually gotten one so early on March 17th. But but the fact that it's, it's interrupting this conversation that she's having and you can see even in what her brother is writing, he says something about having a weird cold and said he still has a cough. And it's almost as though they're having a conversation that he you know, potentially is somebody who had COVID. So that really struck me as an early, an early contribution. What we always really wanted with this project and I think we've been successful with is we wanted to get a platform set up Get kind of all the infrastructure there. Get ourselves, you know, ready to be supportive. But that, the idea is that other people and other organizations would be out there collecting, and then we would be the repository for those people and places. Um, you know, and those community partners are everything from, um, you know, we have a lot of educators from second grade level up through college level who had classroom assignments related to COVID, whether it was young kids writing a letter to their future selves about the experience or seniors in high school reflecting on the fact that they weren't going to graduate in any sort of normal way that they anticipated. Materials were being created out there in these pockets, in these different communities.
6: I'm Dana Signa Monroe, I'm the registrar for the Rhode Island Historical Society. Um, and I am the uh, technical lead for the COVID project. We got community partners who were giving us um, handfuls of submissions at a time. We realized that we needed an, another way to, if you wanted to see just the, the little um, uh, things that the second graders had done, you could go to their, to their contributions. And for uh, contributing partners, we uh, shifted the burden of uploading contributions to the team so that um, they weren't uh, having to upload 25 photographs and essays, collect the data we needed and to add records to the database.
7: My name is Miguel Youngs. I work in communications and marketing for the Rhode Island Historical Society. And I was involved with outreach and social media for the Rhode Island COVID archive. I would say that by the time I became part of the team, uh, the perception of the pandemic itself was sort of undergoing a shift, like a new chapter we were sort of reaching. Like, um, I don't know, we all remember the toilet paper debacle. There's a lot of like anecdotes we have from the beginning. And, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, masks. And everyone was making masks. So it was like a creative statement and stuff like that. I was like, I don't want to say fun because it was always serious, but there was novel. Novel is the right word. And by the time I became involved, um, you know, the seriousness was really starting to settle in. People were losing jobs, people were losing family members, people were passing away, um, and some of the, the the gaps in the archive, I think, were represented by in in these areas. And a challenge I had or something I noticed, was that it's tough to reach out to someone and, you know, as their maybe business is failing, this is their livelihood and asking them to submit that to an archive. This is These are painful topics, but in my mind, and I think the rest of the team's mind, that those are like integral parts of the pandemic and they're part of this history and they should be represented in the archives. One approach I took was framing sort of what this archive is and what the functions of archives are to people and you know helping them realize that when we talk about 1920 1820 a lot of the times we are using diary entries and archives to uh sort of enrich our understanding of that period and the archive that we're building now very well is going to be read by people in 2120 2220 but just framing it that way, I think gave people an understanding of why this archive was important and it helped me have some sort of success with getting people to submit.
8: Angela DeVeglia, I'm the research and outreach librarian for special collections at Providence Public Library um, and I am working on outreach for the COVID archive and I am also cataloging. I think that when I was joining the team um, to begin working on outreach, It was definitely a point where I agreed the novelty of everything had sort of worn off, but I also was joining around the time that there were um, racial justice protests and uprisings happening really, really significantly and visibly um, in our communities and all across the country, which in some ways is, I think, very directly related to the pandemic and what was happening at that point where I think things were starting to unfurl in a way that was showing some of the rifts and inequalities societally, talking directly to community organizations and people working on the ground to document people's experience during COVID and also document how that was intersecting with people's social justice work everyone doing that kind of work acknowledges that documentation is a really essential part of the process, but it's not what's front of mind when you're doing actual organizing
4: work. That moment that Miguel and, and Angela joined us that they're talking about, I think was, um, I mean, for, the, for those, of, those of us who had been in it already for a couple months with the archive, I think the, I don't wanna say the novelty of the archive, but the, the basics of the archive were now up and running. And that was when I think all of us as a group collectively also turned to this idea of, of what is our, like why are we doing this? It was a it was a moment that we could all be reflective also as a group together, and that was actually when we we collectively wrote our statement of values that's up on the, the website, um, and that was something that, you know, was really front and center. Of we were having weekly meetings, you know, every week the the, the team would get together, and that was really. Our priority for a while was looking at, um, you know, why are we doing this, and how can we communicate that out to people? I mean, archives are so often—we're um, always trying to to balance out this um, this thing of we need your stuff, but we don't want to just take your stuff, right? This is this is supposed to be a community community based and and for all of us. And I think the statement of values for us was an opportunity for us to try to gives give some indication to these users out there of here is why here's why we're doing this and why we hope that you're comfortable with us doing this and comfortable sharing it with us i think
7: at first the people who were hearing about this archive are people who are already sort of follow the library and the historical society and there was a need to sort of reach out to people who don't follow either those organizations on social media or the work of it. And we began to focus more on various like communities of color and things of that nature, just to sort of focus outreach in that direction. And but that's when I came on, I think that's where the focus was.
8: Something that I think was really influential for us is I just want to give a shout out to a really amazing webinar that Kate and I attended um, from Doc Now called Archiving Protests, Protecting Activists, Documenting the Now in Conversation with Witness, Blackivists, Texas After Violence Project and Project Stand, um, which was a really amazing webinar that talked a lot about privacy issues um, and how to be ethically documenting racial justice work and activist work. Um, And I feel like that gave us a really huge amount of food for thought and also guided us a lot as we thought about our values
9: and priorities. Hi, everyone. My name is Lee Mendoza, and I serve as the project coordinator for the Latinx Spanish Language um, Outreach and Promotion. So I currently work as a community health worker for a housing development nonprofit organization called Winnie But Builders, located in um, Central Providence, and in my work role, I work directly with community members who live in the zip code areas 02907, 02908, and 02909. Um, most of these families um, and individuals live below the poverty line, and unfortunately, um, this population was at the hardest by COVID-19, along with Central Falls. Um, many face food insecurities, especially in the first wave of the pandemic, Uh, We had community members reach out to us urgently, requesting for financial assistance. And there are parents who couldn't return to work due to lack of daycare. And many have unfortunately contracted the virus. Um, And till this day, many families are still facing similar challenges. And so um, as a project coordinator for the Latinx Spanish language um, promotion and outreach, And as a fellow community member who lives in the same zip code area, I was determined to capture our stories. I wanted our voices to be heard and to be on record for our future generations to learn what our people really went through. And so our experiences are underrepresented in stories about the pandemic. So in efforts of collecting stories as a community, I was on the ground Doing outreach with community-based organizations, uh, local businesses, local restaurants, and uh, schools such as the Will and DeBate Elementary School. For me, um, it was an advantage—an advantage to know that um, as a community member who lives in the neighborhood um, and able to speak the same language as the people that I was working with, um, they felt comfortable they feel at ease to share their stories and to know that, you know, their words and 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 their stories in safe hands.
3: I think one of the things that we've seen happen both internally for our project team as well as reflected for everybody else in the world is a real sense of COVID fatigue. The submissions sort of happen um, you can almost kind of predict the the energy of our team really reflects sort of the energy of the world around us, and um, I think we sort of do these check ins with one another as a group and kind of reinvigorate. Um, but I also think that you know the as we move into this next stage of vaccination and sort of this, it's kind of like a prolonged sort of getting back to normal. Um, I personally hate the phrase new normal, so I don't want to use that, but there is this sense of like slowly moving back to whatever, um, whatever life will be post COVID. Um, you know, I think our project will continue. One of the things we've talked a lot about is the sort of sense of people living through something traumatic, needing to take a pause and a break to be able to actually reflect that experience. So we have talked about keeping this website alive for much longer than COVID itself might be a real presence in our lives, if only because it takes people quite a long time to process the experience and then have something to say about it.
4: And I think, you know, in that way, um, I think we are talking about and trying to partner with more people who are doing oral histories now. And I mean, I think, you know, when we started this project, um oral histories felt like something that would be a large part of it sort of naturally right in in terms of documenting the lived experience and and for the most part we have not had many and i think that's in in part because of what kate's talking about that need to to process the trauma before you know being able to speak to it so we're now really talking to more people who can go out and sort of gather those stories um, within their own communities and then again we just sort of become the repository for that history and we will preserve it long term so I mean we have. We have two people right now who are working on oral history projects one uh, focused on South County, another who's a student at Providence College who sort of focused on um, the experience of being a college student and faculty within that community and staff within that community. Um, And for example, the woman who's doing the project uh, in South County, um, which is where the indigenous community, the Narragansett community of Rhode Island is primarily focused. So she is working to get those stories, but through connecting with, she herself is not Narragansett. um, So connecting with people within that community who might wanna interview one another, right? So it's not always this, this idea of, us, the archives, the archivists, the librarians being sort of extractive, but rather um, how to empower communities to gather their own stories. And then how can we just be a supportive um, kind of host for for that information and a a site where people can access it in the future. Um, While also, you know, the other thing about the way that this archive was built that was really important to us was that Everything that would be that was submitted was submitted through a Creative Commons agreement, which essentially means that anybody in the public anywhere can use this material, um, and they can use it also by it being in other archives. There is no reason that this this collection needs to only be within the sort of domain of the Providence Public Library and the Rhode Island Historical Society. But so again, I think a lot of the idea behind this is is not about you know, it's not about us holding these, these materials so much as us just sort of helping to make them available um, to everybody.
5: Well, I think one of the, the things that this project has tried to do, in addition to as, as Becca and others said, you know, collecting material, and as you Sally has, has said, you know, making sure that there are perspectives that don't always get into traditional archival channels through traditional means, documented, um, you know, expanding beyond the newspaper coverage, um, you know, getting things more permanently that might just kind of materialize on social media and then disappear. Um, but really kind of building up um, a record um, for people to reflect on and learn from is, is a real key component to using digital technology that that allows us all to, to connect with one another you know, not just what we're collecting and and how to avoid being extractive, but also um, how um, to make that material engaging, um, accessible and and how to make it resonate with um, some of the audiences. Um, in the current moment to hopefully invite more contributions, but also to help them uh, get a sense of like, you know, as Sally as was talking about, like a lot of, you know, we're, we're not just working on this project, but we're also parts of these communities, right? So, so seeing um, how your neighbors um, or people in other parts of the state are, are you know, processing and dealing with and, and, and having struggles with a lot of this stuff is a really key component.
0: We're going to leave you with audio from one of our favorite submissions to the archive, a video titled, Toy Theater I Created During the First Weeks of Isolation, by Eli Nixon, with video edits by Jonah M. David, and music by Matt Schreiber. We implore you to visit rodyradio.org where you can link to the video from our episode page and see the brilliant puppetry accompanying the submission. We also encourage you to visit ricovidarchive.org to see more of the collection and to submit your own documentation of living through this pandemic. Thank you for listening and learning about the Rhode Island COVID-19 archive. Rhodey Radio is a project of the Office of Library and Information Services and is supported by a grant from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities.
10: Once upon a time, there was a virus that swept through the land. So the people that could stayed inside. They were alone in new ways. They discovered how to use their roofs and porches. They grew closer with pets and neighbors. They resisted turning into machines. Meanwhile, I have no porch, I have no roof, I have no soap. The virus came from. Finally, at last, those that survived felt themselves changed. They went outside. They learned from the virus to transcend borders, to jump species, to build the world anew. together.